Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 118 with Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues. Because, you know, you need to have, uh, like, it's what you're used to. So, and you, you always have to, you know, in your mind, rearrange what is negative versus what is what people expect. There are certain things that, you know, inherently we think of rancidity as being bad, but it turns out that a little bit of it is what gives this characteristic flavor to something that we all love. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This episode, we're joined by Chef Dave Arnold. He's the host of the Cooking Issues podcast, author of the cocktail book Liquid Intelligence, and the creator of the Searsall and Spinsall. Dave's also the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink and the man behind the New York City bars Booker and Dax and Existing Conditions, sadly, both of which are no longer around. Dave's been a real inspiration for me. I've often said the reason I started my own personal chef business was because of him. Not because Dave's a personal chef, but I took a course with him at the French Culinary Institute in New York almost a decade ago. And while I was there, he opened my eyes to a whole new world of food. At the time, I was kind of burned out with what I was doing and looking to do something new, but wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Social media wasn't really a thing at the time, except maybe Twitter, which I wasn't on yet. Dave gave me a list of blogs to read and people to follow on Twitter, and the rest is history. So I was really excited to have Dave on the show. I've been listening to his show for almost the whole time he's been on. I've asked him a number of questions on the show, and he's just someone I really want to talk to. As I kind of expected going into the show, I kind of let Dave lead the way. I didn't ask a lot of my usual questions, and just kind of leaned into those weird and intriguing food science topics. Like my episode with Daniel Gritzer, our discussion went really long, so I broke it up into two episodes, and this is the first part. We discuss MSG, hacking your home kitchen equipment, pressure cookers, and grain mills. We talk about whole wheat flour, its shelf life, and degradation. We get into olive oil emulsions, and find out which popular candy just might be benefiting from a hint of rancidity. All that and more, after a word from our sponsors. As a grits enthusiast, I'm honored to welcome our newest sponsor, Professor Torbert's Orange Corn. I've been buying their products for a couple years now, so I can speak to the awesome quality of these products. Professor Torbert's Orange Corn is the result of its founder's lifelong dedication to improving the world through science and agriculture. Over 20 years ago, Torbert set out to answer a simple but revolutionary question. Can you naturally make corn more nutritious? Could you deliver the benefits of a vegetable through a grain? Today, non-GMO orange corn is helping fight micronutrient deficiencies in more than 10 African countries. 
The vibrant orange color comes from significantly increased levels of carotenoids. Torbert decided to see what he could do with it here at home. To his delight, he found that not only could Americans' eye health potentially benefit from its higher levels of antioxidant carotenoids, but it also tasted unbelievably good. So when you choose Professor Torbert's, you aren't just saying yes to better flavor, you're also helping deliver better nutrition on a global scale. Tastes good, feels good. All of Professor Torbert's products, grits, cornmeal, and cornflour, are non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. All their products are sold online at ProfessorTorberts.com, on Amazon, and wholesale. And now through the end of November, Professor Torberts is happy to offer all Chefs Without Restaurants listeners 10% off on all orange corn products. Go to ProfessorTorberts.com and simply use the promo code CHEFS10 at checkout. That's C-H-E-F-S-1-0. Did you know restaurants turn over employees four times faster than most businesses? What if somebody created an affordable and effective hiring solution for the restaurant industry? What if there were a job site that only focused on people looking for food service jobs? What if that site only cost $50 a year to advertise for every job your restaurant needed? Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Our sponsor, Savory Jobs, has a job site exclusively for restaurants. The best part is, Savory Jobs only charges $50 for an entire year, and you can post all the jobs you want. And for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. So go to SavoryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the industry. And remember to use SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Hey Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. You're one of my favorite chefs and people in the food world. Uh, And yeah, I can't wait to find out a little bit more about you and see where this conversation goes, maybe down some crazy places, as I know happens on your podcast. I mean, more than likely, I will spiral into some kind of random set of facts, yes. Well, as I started listening to podcasts, Cooking Issues was the first podcast I ever listened to. You know, how long have you been doing it now? Is it like 10 years? So long, 11, like almost 11 years. And we we just actually switched networks recently, which, you know, for any of you out there in the podcast world can be trying. We're still kind of, we're still kind of dealing with the kind of repercussions of that, of that shift. But yeah, we've been doing it for over over 10 years started when I was still at the French Culinary Institute. So, you know, way back in the day, I had a blog called Cooking Issues that was kind of chronicling what we were working on at the French Culinary Institute. And the reason to do a blog back then was, you know, if you didn't have a restaurant, um, you know, even if you were teaching chefs, like, you know, like we were at a culinary school at the time, you know, there was no kind of no one was writing about what you were doing. There was no permanent record of the idea. So you came up with an idea and it was kind of gone. And so we started that blog, but it was taking up so much of my time that, you know, like the way that I was approaching the work was, you know, 4,000 words on, you know, nixtamalization. And those 4,000 words weren't just like 4,000 random words. I mean, it was all dense and everything, but it was like, you know, it was taking a lot of energy and time to produce it. So I thought it would be better to do a podcast where I could take people's questions and interact with them more directly, almost like I would do when I was teaching classes, but in in that podcast form. And so we've been doing it ever since. It's become, I guess, more of just kind of 
you know, Nastasi and I ranting and raving at each other over the years, but, um, you know, there's still hopefully a, a healthy dose of cooking information sifted in, you know? Well, you have a great rapport. I mean, it's a, it's like an interesting relationship, you know, it's like kind of siblings is the way like I would listen, like the way I listen to my kids talk and converse is sometimes how it seems like the two of you are, are talking on the show. And I find it hilarious. It's definitely not like a dry uh, cooking uh, science show. So, right. Well, I mean, I guess that's in a way why it works because, you know, if it was for me, like I'm prone to, I can go off on tangents that are very in the weeds forever. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm having that problem right now. Actually, I'm working on, you know, my, my second book and my wife is proofreading, you know, not proofreading, but editing at proofreading is a derogatory. She's editing it. Right. And it's, She's like, man, you're so like, I mean, it's so boring. Like this discussion of like the different fatty acid profiles in this oil is just so boring. And I'm like, you know, so I need someone to check me and bring me back from that, you know, because I'll, I'll as often go on on rants like that as I will like random, you know, stories or rants. So it's yeah. Yeah. Well, I I've asked a number of questions over the years that you've answered on the show. And I was actually looking back. So. I'm not going to trigger you here, but on episode 49, I definitely was the one who asked about MSG, and that turned into like a half-hour conversation with you totally going crazy when Nastasha said she does not eat MSG. And I, I just think it's like one of the most hilarious things, but that was like way back, episode 49. So I've completely blocked that from my memory. Like that, Like her saying that she didn't eat MSG, I've completely, completely blocked it out of my memory because... I mean, even thinking about her saying that irritates me now, like the, like the fact that she ever said that 10 years later, I don't know, because the thing is she should know better. You know what I mean? She should know better. All right. We won't, we won't. I, I, but it was really helpful because I actually ran a corporate food service place. So I had the same customers every day and I had this like one woman who came in every day and wanted to literally see the labels on every single thing I had in the kitchen. And like, we had to make her special food. I'm just like, this is not a real thing. I'm just going to ask Dave. And like, I literally asked you, you answered it on the show and I played it for my general manager. I'm like, can you take this guy's word for it? Like, is there some way we can work with this woman so we don't have to do this every single day? So it was very helpful to me. Look, when you, as you, when you, you deal either in food service or when you deal with like commercial industrial producers, right? You realize that like anyone who's on the consumer end when they get too hyped up in these, in these things, like on the label, that they're actually just getting the wool pulled over their eyes. And that's what irritates me kind of the most is that it's not just that it's an inconvenience for you as a cook, right? Because whatever, we deal with that all the time. Somebody's preferences are their preferences. It's that you're jumping through these hoops for someone who's being lied to and is believing the lies they're being told, right? About, you know, they're like, oh, uh, I'm fine. I, I won't have any MSG but add all of the hydrolyzed vegetable protein that you want. You're like, what? They're like, I, I, I can't have any MSG, but hydrolyzed vegetable protein. Yeah, we got into that because like the bases, you know, we use, you know, I was doing like a thousand covers a day. So we would use like the pre-made chicken bases and, you know, exactly. That was one of those things where it didn't say it had MSG, but there's hydrolyzed protein in there. It's like, oh, this is going to be like quite the thing, but yeah, you know, but fortunately, uh, people haven't seemed to pick up on that. Like, so the people who are anti-MSG are literally just looking for the words MSG on their 
on their stuff. Now, look, it is also true. Some people need to reduce their, many of us, most of us do not. Some people need to reduce their sodium content, right? But they have other forms of free glutamates out there that aren't the sodium version. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, you know, oh, you don't use MSG. Ah, you like, you like miso soup? You like dashi? Oh yeah, love it. Oh, but that's, you know, it's natural. It's from seaweed. Well, like, well, Please. Yeah, again, this is yeah. probably not what you want to spend the entire time talking about. But, <laughs> well, that's what uh, I, ju- I just wanted to mention it, but I thought I'd put that out there. Yeah. Don't you agree? It's the lie that's the problem. It's the idea that companies spend millions of dollars to make pseudo clean labels that people then spend like a lot of hard earned money on and not for the right reason. That's what it that's what really kind of calls me. Yeah, the whole that whole system really has bothered me for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, at least we have access to labels now. I mean, I remember the day back in you know like the early '90s where you couldn't even get calorie information on a package. So at least we're getting some information now. But I'm sure it's just a big uh, money making thing for someone somewhere. Right, right. But then, but but we're still like laboring under the false concept that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie not the case. You know what I mean? Like how you consume it, where you consume it, you know, how well the stuff's masticated. I mean, the whole thing is like, again, it's important to know all that stuff, but I think people rely, people rely on information, like to a large extent that is in fact unreliable, you know, in terms of what they want, what people want is to live forever and to never get fat. And that's not going to happen, right? You're going to die. And if you eat too much, or, you know, at the wrong times or whatever, you're going to put on some weight. That's fine. You know what I mean? But it's like, I don't know. I, I digress again, you know. Well, let's back up a little bit. How did you get into food and cooking and food science? I was, supp- I was always supposed to be a science guy. Like when I say that, like in high school, when I went to college, you know, my whole family, like I say, medicine and engineers, like the assumption was always I was going to end up being a uh, a science guy, but I had, uh, let's say problems, you know, necessarily going to the classes early in the morning or doing all of the homework, especially cause you know, in high school, I didn't really need to do homework to do well on high school classes. But you know, once you're taking like the really hard college science classes, you kind of actually need to do the work. You can't just skim through it. So I got kind of pulled away from science more towards liberal arts. Um, but that kind of mentality always stayed with me. I ended up uh, getting a master's degree in fine arts. And thus the more I, most of my work was in sculpture was also things like building machines. I was always kind of very invested in kind of gear and equipment and, and science to a certain effect, a sense. Like, you know, one of my pieces was I got fresh frog muscles. I euthanized frogs, built these skeletons, and then built little microprocessor controlled boards and put the, you know, the, uh, the frog muscles onto the skeletons and then made the skeletons move like they were alive, which of course is ridiculous because they weren't, they were dead. It's with dead muscle. That was the whole point of the, the whole point of that piece was the, the kind of the false creation of agency of kind of this kind of the, the Frankenstein myth. So like, that was the kind of work I was doing, but I was getting pushed further and further away from the art world. And I really wanted to be, you know, I was getting more and more invested in, and I've been cooking since forever, right? My mom, even when she was in medical school and, you know, working, you know, a hundred hours a week would always be cooking. We always, you know, big, you know, festive dinners were always a big thing in my family. And ever since I was a kid, I I would, you know, go downstairs and and cook myself. But 
it became more and more something that I really wanted to focus on and do professionally. Uh, you know, at the time I was more interested in historical kind of aspects. Personally, I was invested in in kind of the same kind of analytical way of thinking that I have now, but it wasn't focused on kind of modern techniques. Instead, it was like, okay, I can go to a restaurant auction and I can buy uh, a salamander. I don't own a rotisserie. How can I build a sa- how can I build a rotisserie unit that fits into my salamander? Yeah, like hacking your oven in your apartment, right, to get it hotter. Right, hacking the oven, like hacking, uh, you know, hacking vents so that I could properly ventilate my, you know, commercial deep fryer. I know your pressure cooker. Like you've talked a lot about like pressure cookers, like especially electric ones to get them up, right? Like there's a way to kind of work around that. There is, uh, although um, uh, the the original one that I hacked, I hacked an old Cuisinart to up the uh, temperature on it, and it eventually did crap out at the higher temperature. I really don't know why. Uh, I once spoke to the uh, one of the uh, a VP of design at Cuisinart, and he said to me, uh, well, why do you want it to go to the higher pressure? And I said, well, because I've run tests and it cooks faster and tastes better at the higher pressure. So why wouldn't you do it? You know, and I think the, you know, the reason is, is that the electric pressure cookers by and large are not controlling based on pressure. So it's an old school pressure cooker is literally like, you know, it's just got a valve and after a certain amount, it it indicates some indicate by venting, some indicate with a spring and then you, you adjust it, right? So you're not really setting the temperature you're setting the pressure. Whereas in most of these electric pressure cookers, they have an overpressure valve, but they're not directly sensing the pressure like you would in say an espresso machine. So espresso machines, strangely, uh, like, you know, traditional espresso machines have what's called, they, they don't have a thermostat. They have what's called a pressure stat, right? And so they're, they're adjusting the pressure of the boiler to adjust the temperature of the product because it's above boiling. And so it's always there at, at an elevated pressure but they don't ever use pressure stats in electric pressure cookers. They use temperature. So I think the theory is, is that they want to set a temperature such that the pressure uh, never exceeds 15 PSI. And so they have its actual target pressure be lower. That's my guess. Although having tested as high as I think 22 or 25, I have to go back and look at my data, having tested at substantially higher pressures. I mean, they could make the, pan withstand the high, I mean, forces get astronomical after a while as the pressure increases because the pot lids are so big, you know, so the, the, the average force only cre- increases linearly, but you know, the, the force on the lid goes up as the square because, you know, the surface area. Anyway, you know, I've run tests on it and you really don't need to get above 15. So I don't know what PSI, you know, uh, gauge. I don't know why they don't do it. They, it, they, things cook substantially faster and they have meatier flavors at those higher temperatures. So I don't know why they, I don't know why they don't. I haven't yet bought an Instapot and cut it open to, you know, to see what's kind of going on with them. Well, it's a great marriage of food and science. And, you know, you've got your company now. I backed the Sears all when you first launched it on Kickstarter ages ago. Such a fantastic tool. Actually, I, uh, one one of the blowtorches from you because I posted a video, uh, Instagram I guess of me like blowtorching a whole pig's head with it. So, oh, nice. um, yeah. So you sent me a torch. So I've had my sears all for a number of years, and uh, so you've got that. You have the spins all. What else are you working on? You have anything in the works? Well, I do. Have, I have a lot of things uh, in the works. I mean, we had a bit of a, a hiccup 
man, more than a bit of a hiccup. So, um, you know, last year, right before the holiday rush. So when you're selling things, you know, uh, even in restaurants, right, we all know that the holiday season between Thanksgiving and New Year is where you're going to, that's where you're really, you know, making solid money. So if, if anything happens to you during that season, it's kind of, it's a nightmare. And for any of you out there that are going to ask a, a chef to leave their restaurant, like don't ask them to leave during that high season, because like, that's when they need to kind of be there pushing the, pushing the restaurant. Similarly, in, uh, when you're selling consumer goods, you know, a lot of the sales are, you know, kind of in that holiday period. And last year, you know, Amazon, the automatic, someone basically put in a, a, a comment that flagged uh, something on Amazon's automated robot and they turned off the Sears all sales. And it took us six months, six over six months to get them to go back online. And we had not, and this is a thing to people keep in mind, we had not diversified our sales channels at all. So it completely hosed us. And you know, we haven't yet, we haven't yet recovered. So we're still kind of working on it. So for a while. People were like, oh, um, you know, is, are you out of business? Is the Sears all, and it's like, it hasn't been discontinued. We're, we're, you know, we're working on it. And in the meantime, a lot of knockoffs came onto the market who are infringing our patents. They're totally illegal. Most of them are really crappy too, uh, in terms of they don't use very good uh, metal for the screens. And so they, they burn out or they throw carbon flakes or they throw metal flakes onto people's products. They're just a nightmare. So they infringe our patent and they make us look bad. And it's gotten to the point where people are hashtagging Sears all on uh, Instagram using knockoffs. And I'm like, come on, man, come on. Um, you know, we haven't, uh, um, it's in the spins all. So we, we, we had just some bad luck, right? So like when, what should have been a good period of time, people bought a lot of stuff at home uh, during COVID, right? Uh, because they were at home cooking a lot more than they, than they used to be. So it, it like for other people who are in our business, it was our, my bar existing conditions got wiped out by, you know, by COVID. So that's done. So like a lot of us in that part of the industry got ruined, right? But including myself, but uh, you know, a lot of people who were on the sales side, like people who sell knives, people who sell pots, it was very good for people who sell like home milling equipment because those guys were all about to go out of business. And, and now like everyone wants to mill flour at home. I even, I mill flour at home. Although not as a result of the pandemic, it's strange. Do you have a good recommendation on on a mill? Because I've looked at those and, you know, the reviews are all over the place. So what are you looking to do? Just like very entry level, but something where I'm not going to spend a couple hundred bucks on a cheap version and then want to upgrade. So, you know, within reason, um, I'm just interested in whatever good applications would be, but just some very basic milling of flour at home. So like nine tenths of the mills that are on the market well, that's no, not true because they have micronizing mills. I would stick with a stone mill. Of, uh, I have not used one of the micronizing mills, but I have used the mills that I have used are in my house. I mean, I've used other mills outside of my house, but in my house, I have used uh, a mock mill 100. I've used the Como Mio. I have used the KitchenAid uh, mill. I have used Corona mill. I've used uh, several wet mills. I have used the Nixtomatic uh, mill for um, uh, masa, right? Uh, I've used uh, Blender. So I think that's the range of ones that I've used. So 
Uh, oh, and I had a, an old mill, which is um, called a, a Mormon mill. It's like an old kit mill that, you know, uh, is an upright version. It's also stone, right? And the, the KitchenAid was a nightmare. I hated using it. I bought that thing. I bought that thing when I had no money because I was so excited to mill flour. This was in the 90s. And it came out and I was so stoked. And it just makes terrible flour. It's really bad. I've read a lot of reviews that it also can like burn out the motor on your KitchenAid. I believe that it's just not a good product. Just don't use it. And it costs, it costs enough that it should be a good product, but it's just not, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, I wonder whether, and they don't let you do things like masa on it. I don't even have it anymore because I was like, I hate this. I used it like once or twice. I was like, I hate this. And, you know, I would say that, um, the mock mill, the one from the seventies that I was telling you, the Mormon mill and the Como Mio, which is the one that I have at right now, they all make equivalently good flour. The Como that I use now is significantly quieter than the, um, than the Mormon mill, which was loud as hell. So loud. I mean, this one's not quiet, but the, the other one was so loud that, you know, it bothered my family. At $2.99, the Como Mio is probably the cheapest thing that you're going to get that does a really good job. You know, you the trick with them is, is that you, you can't start them with grain in them. It's a huge nightmare, right? So what you do is you lightly open the, the mill a little bit. You start it and then you rotate it to adjust the grind down to just where the burrs start to touch then you add your grain and then you tighten it a little bit more to get the super fine flour. And then I also sift mine through a 60 mesh uh, sieve using a vibratory thing for bread. Uh, I don't for quick breads. I don't for, um, so like Liege style waffles, I sift. Bread, I sift. Pizza, sift. Uh, pancakes, I do not sift. Banana bread, I do not sift. So it's like, you know, it all depends on how much I'm requiring the structure of it. But if you've never used fresh milled flour before, it is amazing stuff. Like I will never, ever purchase whole wheat flour ever again. I mean, there are some people who will mill you whole wheat flour and ship it to you like right as it's milled. And if you use somebody else's whole, whole wheat flour that was milled within a week or so of uh, it's great, but even by one month old, wheat flour is significantly degraded in tests that I've run, uh, like significantly degraded. And so, uh, yeah, so this is why like most recipes that use whole wheat flour, they're using, oh, it's some small percentage of whole wheat flour, or they're using, you know, uh, they have to dope everything with a boat ton of oil and sugar and a bunch of other stuff to get it to taste good or to have a good texture. And really 100% whole wheat flour, it's never going to have, you know, as giant an airy structure as, uh, you know, a bread flour or an AP flour will on, for instance, like the, the uh, uh, Jim Leahy no need bread recipe, but you don't need any adjuncts with it. It bakes great and tastes great. AP flour and bread flour also make great tasting bread. But it's a fantastic thing to experiment with. And when you, when you do it, I think you'll also notice that, you know, one of the issues with whole wheat bread is it's a lot more active than uh, AP flour. There's a lot more stuff in it, right? And so, you know, one of the issues is, is that a lot of the flours that I have have very high uh, enzyme activity in them. So if you allow the, the bread dough 
to uh, exist for too long, right? So like a lot of people are doing, you know, they're retarding in the fridge, they're retarding their bread doughs for like 72 hours or, you know, whatever. If you do that with a whole wheat dough, uh, it can get really slack because the enzymes are gonna break down and ditto on like, you know, sourdough whole wheat is great, but uh, you know, but if they go for a long, long time, you can have problems with the dough getting too slack. And I so had that problem the last time. I did like a 72 hour and it was not right. Yeah, on, on a whole wheat? Yeah. Yeah, uh, they get slack, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of the arguments that people, I haven't run this test yet, but a lot of the arguments people make on retarding doughs to get extra flavor, I think is can be key with an AP or with a you know with a standard bread flour. But I think you kind of have to look at things differently when you're switching to an entirely different product, which whole wheat flour is. Again, sorry, I, I knew we were going to end up in the weeds somewhere. But. Yeah, no, that's really interesting stuff. I love these. I just had uh, Daniel Gritzer from Serious Eats on my show, and it was a very similar thing where we're like talking, and then we got into like this twenty minute sidebar on olive oil. I'm like, we're just going to roll with this because the food nerds are going to love it. Yeah, what do you say about olive oil? I mean, I'll, twenty minutes worth, but like, yeah, I mean, it was it? it was just about the like um, bitterness or perceived bitterness, and we we're talking about almost in like relation to putting it in a blender. Like, there's a lot of people who say you can't make a vinaigrette in a blender, but like, why can't you? And does it get bitter? Why or why not? And it all comes down to like polyphenols, and um, he suspects like in the presence of like water or like a water based thing, like that can affect it. So it was just kind of like his overview of what he's found um, in the science of like blending olive oil. It's a well-known fact that uh, olive oils can go intensely bitter, specifically in the making of mayonnaise. I have never heard anyone, for instance, say that their pesto turned to crap because they have used a blender, right? And so, I mean, has he? I don't, I've never heard of anyone saying it. In other words, so it's- No, not at all. And he found it to be kind of like a, a hit or miss thing that it's, you know, there's so many variables, like what kind of olive oil you're using, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to isolate it to kind of say yes or no. And it, yeah, and it's, you know, and mayonnaise is, you know, such a fine emulsion. It's something about making the emulsion with mayonnaise that can cause olive oil to get bitter. And I've never experienced it in any other blended oil, blended olive oil application, mm. put it that way. So like, I've never had a pesto go bitter. I've never had a chimichurri because I use olive oil in that too. I've never had that go bitter. The same thing, right? But you know, not really, you know what I'm saying? They're the same thing, different flavors. I've never had, uh, what else do we blend olive oil with? I don't really blend vinaigrettes because I don't, but you know, if I, have I ever blended a vinaigrette? I have emulsified vinaigrettes and I don't ever remember them going uh, bitter, but in general, I don't blend a vinaigrette anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. We would just do it like, you know, you've got a dinner for 200 people and you're making a vinaigrette and the easiest way to keep it emulsified is just throw it in the Vitamix for, you know, like a couple minutes and it'll stay together, you know, so you don't have to keep shaking or stirring. Yeah. You ever do the tickaloid for that? I have. I haven't done that in a long time, but yes, that's the kind of stuff that like taking the hydrocolloids class with you was really beneficial for. Yeah. So like that kind of stuff, because like, that's where you get a real quality issue, right? So like at home, I literally just pour the stuff on my greens separately and toss the greens. But if you're serving like 200 people, right, then, you know, you're not, what are you, you're not going to, you're going to finish salt each individual bowl. You're not going to, 
You're not going to make sure that the ratio is right. And then you're going to get such separation over time. Like that's when something like Tikaloy, which for those who don't know what we're talking about, it's a mixture of gum Arabic and Xanfan gum. And the gum Arabic is an actual emulsifier that, uh, it's an actual emulsifier that helps the oil uh, vinegar mixture be more stable and the xanthan uh, like energetically more stable. And the xanthan is like a light gelling agent to actually stop it from separating at all. And it's fantastic at salad dressings and at, you know, syrups for bar and anything you're going to put fat into that you're then either going to dilute or let sit around for a long time. It's great stuff. And this could get us further off the track. And I have a question I want to ask you because I don't know if I'm crazy and I'm imagining it, but I thought I remembered in your class, did you not talk about the flavor in Reese's peanut butter cups being that the peanut butter is rancid? Was that you? Yes. Okay. I like, I was not sure if it was like in my imagination and it was like one of these like weird anecdotal things that for years I had in my head. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's what Dave Arnold said, but like I Googled it and I can't find any information about it anywhere on the internet, but I thought it was you. Right. So yeah. So what, what happened was I was at the Jacob Javits Center, which is a, it's a, uh, what's it called? It's a trade, it's a trade center hall. And this is back when trade shows were still kind of a thing. The trade show industry has been, you know, slowly dying as the internet gets more and more. uh, Yeah. Like the fancy food show, right. Or whatever. Yeah. So this one was for food packaging equipment and, and materials. And I, and I used to live a block, two blocks from the Javits. So whenever a show like that would come up, I would just, I would just go whether or not I had a reason to go, I'd be like food packaging equipment. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I went and this guy, have you ever worked a trade show before? I've never worked a trade show before. They're complete nightmares. And so like, you know, when you go like the worst nightmare is to go to like, you, you're paying money. You have to stand there all day and be receptive all the time. Even though 99.9% of the people walking past you want nothing to do with you. You have to make the eye contact and shake the head and, and then try to get people to come in and interact with you with your product. But at the same time, if they're not actually going to buy, you're wasting time and you could have been spending time. It's just a huge nightmare. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's especially bad if it's not what they call a writing show, i.e. one where someone's coming in and writing a bunch of orders. If you're just sitting there and, you're, and you're, you feel like you're wasting your company's money, you're wasting your own time, everything's a waste. So I approach a guy who's clearly having one of those kinds of days. And I was talking to him about oxygen scavenging packaging because back then it was, uh, it still is, but you know, like it was, you know, relatively newer back then they would put inserts into packages that would absorb the extra oxygen. So for any food preppers out there, you know, who are, you know, waiting for the zombie apocalypse, like, you know, nowadays, uh, a lot of companies, when you buy things like grain, they'll put them into a vapor type, you know, bag, they'll throw a bunch of oxygen scavengers in there, which are you know, the simplest ones are fundamentally iron filings that just absorb and turn to rust in the package, seal it, close it, and then you know, the oxygen will get consumed. And, you know, you're in a, a stable place such that 25 years from now, when the zombies show up, your, your grain stores will still be good. Okay. So uh, I'm talking to this guy about oxygen scavenging. And I think it was after lunch. I think he'd already been drinking because like he started talking to me about like, he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, we, we, we tested these once, these oxygen scavengers on Reese's peanut butter cups, and they were too fresh. It turns out that they needed to have a little bit of rancidity to them or nobody liked them. So I couldn't get Reese's to buy the, the pack. And like, he was going on. I was like, am I supposed to be hearing this? Am I supposed to know this? That like the secret of Reese's peanut butter cups is this like 
like Sue Saul of Rancidity. And so, yeah, from, from then on that, that story, and I tell it all the time, I'm like, you know, one person's rancid is another person's Reese's because, you know, you need to have, uh, like it's, it's what you're used to. So, and you, you always have to, you know, in your mind, rearrange what is negative versus what is what people expect. There are certain things that, you know, inherently we think of rancidity as being bad, but it turns out that a little bit of it is what gives this characteristic flavor to something that we all love. Right. Yeah. There was a great article. Uh, it was Lucky Peach magazine. I think they did. It was the apocalypse issue. And it was a, t- a discussion about, you know, like expiration dates and how an expiration date is based on the given change, positive or negative in something. So even if something's, say, getting better as it sits in a can, the expiration date has to be before that because it's changed from whatever the baseline was. And I just found that to be really interesting. I think that was a Harold McGee article. Yeah, I did a tasting with Harold McGee of 10-year-old sardines once. I think it was 10. Might have been more. Yeah, they were different, but they were, they, were, they were good. They were fine. And the other thing about food is you have to put an expiration date on it, right? So it's like um, Mountain House, which is one of the companies that makes uh, a lot of uh, MREs, and they make uh, you know, freeze-dried foods for camp and all this other stuff. They recently reevaluated their, all of their – they're like, listen – we had never, we just hadn't been in business long enough to know how long this stuff would last. So we put, I forget what it was. We put like a 20 year date on it. And it turns out it's good for 30. Cause like a lot of these things, like it's hard to test what the actual expiration date is. Like hydrocolloids have to have an expiration date on them, even though they last fundamentally most of them forever. Uh, you know, there's not really a lot of static, not a lot of change because there's not a lot of moisture content. I mean, the things that change most radically are things with high moisture content or things that contain fats you know, flour, as long as the moisture content's low and it doesn't get invaded by insects is, you know, it's, well, non-whole wheat flour, you know, just straight endosperm is like, it's good to go. It's it's fine. What's the perishability on whole wheat flour? Almost immediate. Mm. So in the tests that I've run and I, and I'm in the process of running more tests. So I have to say my, my N as they say is not very high. Right. But so far the tests that I have run are tests of same day, one week, and uh, one month. So whole wheat flour is complicated, right? Structurally, it's complicated. And anything that people tell you about, oh, well, the reason that whole wheat loaves don't rise is because the brand acts like tiny knives and it cuts through the garbage. I mean, it's maybe not garbage. It's maybe partially true. But it's like, like it's so much more complicated uh, than that. So as you know, the, the, the bran that's in whole wheat, as soon as you start, as soon as you grind it, it starts to oxidize and the, the oxidized bran interacts very differently with the dough than fresh bran does. And so there are things that are happening in the flour where the quality of it for baking is improving, right? Which is why with white flour, you typically don't want it fresh. You want it aged for a while. Whereas in the whole wheat aspect of it, I'm guessing uh, starts getting worse the minute that it's made. And so I think what you have is, is you have kind of, uh, you know, one quality is going up while the other quality is going down. So, so far in my tests, I had that like the loaf volume on like a one week old whole wheat flour, 100% whole wheat, not sifted, 100%. Uh, you know, ground, it was giving you the parameters, ground such that 90% of it would pass through a 60, uh, a, a number 60 mesh. 
but again, unsifted, just wheat, salt, water, yeast, right? Uh, that's it. No oil, no adjuncts, no sugar, no nothing. All raised for the same amount of time. Your low volume on the one week was higher than your low volume on the fresh. And so for some people that makes a lighter, that makes a lighter, you know, bigger air structure. For some people, that's a higher quality value. Now I preferred eating the same day loaf. Now, is that just because I really wanted that same day loaf to win? Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to trust myself on that, but you know, I'm fairly confident in saying that there are multiple things going on and that both the fresh loaf and the one week loaf are very good. The one month old loaf didn't taste as good. It didn't rise as well. It was much denser. It had started turning into what, I mean, it wasn't awful, but it had started turning into what everyone worries about when they worry about whole wheat loaves, that it's just going to be some leaden little poorly textured, like sandy, gritty sack of garbage, right? Hadn't made it all the way there yet, but it was on its way. So I currently have a whole bunch of flower samples uh, aging. So I'm going to try to do like four month, three month, two month, one month, two week, one week. You know, I'm going to try to like do it a little more with an N of three at each repetition point, just so that I can be more, you know, I can speak with more certainty and, and oh yeah, I should say also all same wheat, same batch. So I, I had to stop my old test because I ran out of that wheat. So I have enough of the wheat that I'm using that I can continue this test through until the, the bitter end. It doesn't make me optimistic for using grocery store, whole grain or whole wheat flour. Yeah, don't. Don't. Even the good stuff. I mean, you, you know, you go to like these expensive like Whole Foods type places that have like this beautiful einkorn flour or whatever. It's like, uh, you know, does it even matter at that point? I mean, for certain applications, taste it. Like if it tastes okay, I'm just saying in bread applications, I wouldn't, you know, maybe in a quick bread, it would still be okay. You know, you also have to change, you have to change your expectations. And also you have to really understand like, you know, how your hydration is going to dip. There's a, like, you can't need it as long because remember back when I said a lot, a lot of people are like, Oh, if you need it too long, the quote unquote, the, the tiny knives from the brand are going to cut through the thing. Well, also the other thing that's happening when you need a, a, a dough, one of the reasons you do need a dough is to in, in, incorporate a certain amount of oxidation into the dough, the actual air contact. Right. Uh, and so you'll talk about like, you know, um, you know, when they do the crappy Chorleywood processed bread, it's like it's turning very white because it's oxidizing as it's being blended. Well, if you over knead or you need the, the whole wheat dough, you're also oxidizing all of the, the brand components through oxidation. So kneading isn't just this tiny knife phenomenon, which may or may not be true or exist, uh, but it's also this oxidation phenomenon that's going on. So it's, again, one of those things where the simple thing that everyone tells you, like, Maybe it has some value when you're cooking, but it's not really telling you what's going on. And the real story is more complicated than that. There are a couple of farms. It's going out of my head right now, but I think it's maybe the Severson or Severson farm out of Illinois. One of these places will, if you, I forget what it is, but it's great. When you, when you, when you order from them, I order whole grain from them. So it doesn't matter. But they were like, listen, we only ship, we only ship once a week. And what happens is, is we gather all of the orders and then we mill them all on Monday and Tuesday and we mail them out on Wednesday. And so they don't keep any flour in house. So if someone who's going to like contract mill your stuff for you, 
you know, I would buy that in a heartbeat. As in fact, like I would say before you start buying your own mills and stuff, I would order some some contract milled stuff like that because they'll do small amounts. Like they'll they'll send you like five pounds or you know two pounds of uh, of wheat that they milled this week, and then you'll really get the idea of what it's like to bake with actual fresh whole wheat flour. And I highly recommend that anyone that has never done it before do it. But please don't gunk it up. Like let's say you're just going to do bread. So usually when you're doing like a like a, a a bread, like your hydration is really just dependent on the protein content, right? So there's the style of bread you want to make, but then if you're using a bread flour, you're using a higher hydration. Uh, and people say that, well, that's because, you know, the, the gluten absorbs more, uh, more water, right? So you need a high, well, really that's one of the reasons. The other reason is, is that the harder flours, uh, the harder wheats, which tend to have higher gluten contents, although the hardness of the wheat and the gluten content aren't actually caused by the same proteins, which is interesting. There's more starch damage in the higher protein flours. And this, the damaged starch requires more water for a given, it'll hold more water. And so you have the ability, A, the gluten structure is stronger, so it can make these like bigger holes that hold well when they're, um, when, when it's baked, but also uh, the damaged starch means that it can hold more water as a dough and rise when it hasn't uh, been uh, baked yet. And so it's kind of a, a double whammy. Whereas bran, uh, the whole wheat, you know, the bran absorbs more water, but it doesn't really increase its ability to hold it in a dough structure, if that makes sense, right? So I would just not expect it to rise as high as, you know, your your no-need bread with the giant holes in it. But I would start, you know, I would get a decent protein flour somewhere between uh, like uh, somewhere between 11 and 13 to start on a hard wheat for a bread. And I would start in the hydration ratio of like 75%, 75 to 77%. I would do it with yeast to start. I wouldn't start with sourdough and all that, because like I say, the, these things can be very active and they can get very slack. And I would try to just do a one day bake. I wouldn't do like a super long retarding on it. I would use SAF red as a good base yeast. It doesn't provide a lot of off flavors the way some instant, you know, yeast can. And, uh, I would not don't add oil and I would stick it around 2.2% salt. And that'll just give you a baseline for, like how that wheat acts. Then you want to go sourdough, go sourdough. You want to, you know, retard it and see how the dough goes slack. Great. But for when you're first starting with fresh whole wheat flour, I would keep your rise times relatively short. I would do it with yeast so that it's reproducible and you can figure out just what the flour is doing, not what you're doing with your starter. And I would keep the hydration levels right, right around there between 75 and 79 in that, in that area. That I mean again, sorry. In no, the no, all good tips. Like, yeah, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna try that. There's some really good uh, small wheat uh, purveyors, producers around here, and I think I'm gonna reach out and go that route. I have a lot of friends who have, um, you know, bread baking businesses, and see if they can get me the hook up and kind of start there. So, like here in New York City, there's a place called uh, Farmer Grown Grains but they don't contract mill. So they mill in batches and you get them, but you can also buy whole grains from them. Yeah. In general, it's better to have contact with someone that has contact with the miller. Yeah. Milling corn is kind of a pain because the corn that it uses uh, is, is bigger, but I made some, uh, you know, you fresh mill and look the, the fancy stuff like, like, uh, 
you know, Geechee and Anson and all, all those folks down in, in, uh, in, you know, Charleston and whatnot, their cornmeal and their grits are fantastic. I'm not going to say anything negative about them at all, but I mean, when you mill your own, it's nuts. Cornmeal, please. Yeah. I have five different varieties of grits right now from down there. I have relatives in Charleston and we just came back and I just brought back like five different types of grits. Yeah. Yeah. Which ones do you remember? So, like, uh, you know, Geechee Boy Mill, which is now Marsh Hen Mill. I think they changed their name because of... Um, because he's not Geechee. Yeah. Because he's not Geechee. So, you know, I've got their Unicorn Grits, which is like a pink-ish grit. Um, mm. And then their uh, Flint, is it Guinea Flint Grits? Uh, the white, the yellow, and the blue. Yeah, I've had the blue. It's good. I've had the, what's it called? Jimmy Red. Oh, yeah, the Jimmy Red. I didn't get any this time, but those those are good. Great. Yeah. Really good. You know, the I'm blue, I, the blue, I like for the color, especially for some things like it looks really nice to do like a scallop and grits on the blue corn. Yeah. I've been using, uh, I've been grinding at home, bloody butcher. It's really big. The, the kernels are really big and it's like, it's really hard on my mill. So like, that's one of the few things that I actually, uh, I do a double pass. I like move the stones way far apart and just crack it going through and then mill it to its, its, uh, final, stuff, but I've been having a lot of fun, you know, taking it to more of a floury consistency and less of a cornmeal consistency. And it operates in, in a fundamentally different way from the way cornmeal does when you take it down closer to a flower, but it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. Hmm. Just another project when I have uh, some free time, I guess. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.